Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Tom English's book, The Grudge, first published in 2010, tells the story of the Calcutta Cup match between Scotland and England in March 1990. Memorably, Scotland beat their old rivals at Murrayfield to win the Grand Slam. But this was more than a match and more than a rare Scottish sporting triumph. It was one of the most memorable rugby matches in modern history, set against a wave of anti-English sentiment fuelled by Margaret Thatcher's imposition of the poll tax on Scotland. History, politics, class. It is all brought to life through incredible interviews with not just the victorious Scots, but controversial figures such as Will Carling and Brian Moore. Tom breaks down his audience with those key characters and reveals the agonising structural and stylistic decisions which made this one of the best sports books of the last 20 years and one which has now been updated for a special 30th anniversary hardback edition. Enjoy. I want to start by talking about the concept for the book. I've always thought that the, the, kind of, the simple ideas are the best ideas and sometimes they're the ones that people often walk past mm. on their way to trying to find more complicated subjects to take yep. on. So many pieces of the story just fit together so so beautifully around this one occasion, this one memorable mm. match. I'd like to know like when you first thought of the idea. Were you at the game? Did you watch the game? Did you remember it at the time and think this could be something I could come back to? Or as the years went by and the game kind of entered the mythology of rugby history, is that when you start, started to think, well, this could be something? That yeah, I, I wasn't at the game. And I think it was a help that I wasn't at the game mm. because sometimes, you know, I've been at sporting events and people have written books about that sporting event, very good books. And then I'm looking back and saying, why didn't I write a book about that? Mm. Because sometimes, you, you, as you were saying, you miss the idea that's in front of your face. So, no, I wasn't at the game. I have a vague memory of watching. I was living in London at the time. I was working on the building sites in London. Um, and I have a vague memory of watching the game in this house. It was about 14 of us living in this house and watching it then and been struck by wow this is a big upset but straight to the pub after that forgot yeah. about it i think when i started to think that wow there's something very very interesting here is when the sunday times produced a book edited by, by my brother actually who was working for the sunday times at the time with the 50 greatest sporting moments of the century and steve jones the rugby correspondent he's sporting moment of the century from the rugby perspective was the 1990 game and he brought a lot of the political stuff into it margaret thatcher the poll tax and it was a piece of maybe about two and a half thousand three thousand words something like that and i mean that was that would have been around 2000 i started to engage with the idea about 2008 so eight years so you know I don't do things in a hurry, but it was always in my head. Because I wanted to do a book. I wanted, I thought, you know, long-form journalism. I, I, this is something a lot of my friends in Sunday Times had done, had done, but I just wanted to do one. And then I thought, and then I thought, you know, this 19, let's go back to 1990. And I poked around with it. And I think once you, once you have an idea that you can't get out of your head, then you're onto something. Yeah. So I could find myself at 11, 12 o'clock at night, Googling Will Carling, Googling Brian Moore, 
And I thought, I was doing this time and time and time again, thought, actually, do you know what? You have the passion to do this. Mm -hmm. What I didn't want to be doing was sitting out in my shed at the end of my garden at two o'clock in the morning, regretting that I had taken this thing on. And I knew by the fact that I was constantly going back to it, almost subconsciously, that I wouldn't regret the massive amounts of time that, that it was going to take, which, which I didn't, to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting that it was such a long process and it's kind of heartening to, to, to hear that because we often talk about, you know, there's so many books now that, that shouldn't be books. Mm. You know? <laughs> books should be something special yeah. about something special and books deserve enough time to almost like what's the word like marinate you know the, yeah. the, the idea yeah. to come to fruition so I guess that's what's happening in those years when you're yeah. you know you're percolating and you, you know maybe anniversaries of it are coming up and you're reading it again and you're seeing you're seeing the full scope of it yeah in those years which is which is great it's also from rereading the book again I was kind of reminded of how this is not just a, a a story of a, a rare Scottish sporting triumph, mm. you know. It's really, it's it goes way beyond Scotland and it's it's a kind of, such an important uh, story about England as well because mm-hmm. that was a kind of era definingly good team, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and they had this incredible success coming up to that game and actually had great success after it because... That that was the kind of turning point. They they had they changed the way they, they played on the basis of this game. They, so, did, they absolutely did. They so absolutely. It's, a, it's a big big idea. It's bigger than it initially even. Yeah, but it, if it was just a story about a rugby match, I wouldn't have bothered. Do you know, it had to be. There had to be something else, and the something else came with all the stuff that I was reading about how much it had affected Brian Moore and Will Carling mm-hmm. in the first instance. You know, they, did, they had done numerous interviews that this was the worst moment of their rugby life. Scotland had become this seething madhouse and they took the brunt of it as the two kind of totemic, the totemic figures in the England team. And that Scotland had changed. They, were, came, they played at Murrayfield in 1988 and everybody was really nice to them. And they were going around Edinburgh after the match and drinking pints with Scottish fans and it was great. And they came back in 1990, different country. So I was fascinated as to what was going on politically in Scotland at the time. And it helped that I had this incredible cast of characters, all of whom were happy to speak to me, or most of them were happy yeah. to speak to me. A couple didn't. Uh, especially the England guys. Because the first two calls I made were Brian Moore and Will Carling, and I said, if, if either of them turned me down, I'm not doing it. Right. Because yeah, these are the guys who felt it the most. Yeah. They were the yeah. absolute... I was kind of pretty confident that a lot of, most of the Scottish guys would speak, because they're speaking about yeah. the greatest day of their careers. But Moore and Carling were absolutely central to it. So when they agreed to meet me, I thought, okay, here we go. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're in some ways, they're the central figures of the book. And I think you actually start the book with, with Carling and really fascinating character, I think. Um, mm. I, I thought he really, he almost kind of bared his soul in this book. It was really, really personal. I was surprised. Stuff, you know? I was surprised. And like, I had never spoken to Will Carling before. Right. Didn't know him. But I knew Keith Wood, former Ireland hooker who had played for Harlequins with, with Carling. And Keith, on my behalf, rang up Carling and says, look, would you, would you talk to this guy? He's okay. He's doing a book on 1990. So that's how it came together. So I met him down in London in a hotel. I was quite nervous, you know. Mm. And I actually, you know, a book is so personal. I mean, I could write 100 articles and 100 different interviews for BBC or for The Scotsman before or for The Sunday Times before that, and I wouldn't be nervous before any of them. But when you're going to do an interview for a book, it's different because it's so personal. Like, I mean, you're kind of, you're kind of vulnerable, you know? Yeah. You're vulnerable in a, writing a book the way you're not vulnerable writing a 
online piece or a magazine piece or a, a newspaper piece. So I was nervous going to see Carling. And he was incredibly open. I mean, way more. And Keith Wood had said to me, give me a ring when you're finished with him and let me know what you think. Mm. And I was expecting Will Carling, this, this, this kind of, you know, incredibly self-confident yeah. English guy, you know, the epitome Twickenham man, that kind of thing. Totally the opposite. I mean, I was, as you say, he did. He really, really opened up. And there was some stuff of him saying, you know, in certain areas, I'm, I'm a weak man. Mm-hmm. I'm in certain areas of my life, I am a weak man. And he was talking about he split up with his former girlfriend and the, mm-hmm. the yeah. mother of his first child and all the rest of it. Because rugby was a protective barrier around normal life, shielding him from normal life. So he was going through all of this. I was going, bloody hell, wow. So I rang up Keith afterwards and he said, what do you think? I said, he's either spinning me a huge line here or I found him incredibly insecure mm-hmm. and unbelievably honest. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's exactly what he's like. He says, all of the stuff that everyone saw throughout his career was all bullshit. Mm-hmm. He, terrific player, but very, very insecure in himself. Very, and of course, you delve deeper. Why would he be insecure? Well, he started to go to boarding school when he was seven. Cried himself to sleep at night. The only way he could he could kind of survive in that environment was to was to put up a mask, mm-hmm. a mask of I've got this, and he did that from the age of seven to get through boarding school, and he did it as England captain because he was captain at twenty two. Yeah, um, in a dressing room of players that he absolutely worshipped. Yeah, and I'm so grateful to Carling to because he didn't know me. He didn't have to. He could have no. given me the party line here, you know, but he didn't. Well, the, the, the intimacy of that, of the conversations you have comes, comes through in the book. Was that, so, was that all, did you get all the material from Carling on the basis of that one interview? Yeah, did you go, so, that was one wow. long interview. I don't know how long, it might have been three hours, wow. something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he, he, I think he was prepared. I, yeah. think, I think he would, <laughs> must have briefed him thoroughly that, look, <laughs> he's going to be keeping you chatting. Uh, yeah. um, so he was, um, so that was one, in, yeah. I mean, I interviewed Lord. I mean, I think I interviewed, Brian Moore three or four times, right. Telford three okay. or four times. But that was one. Carling was one. Carling was yeah. one line because he's a very busy guy. I had one shot at him, really. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Brian Moore stuff, I think he's the other really captivating mm. character in the book. I wrote down a couple of, you described him as a walking exclamation mark, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> um, somebody says later in the book about him, he smiled with difficulty. Mm. He was the only man I'd ever met who had clenched hair. It's <laughs> 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 like, like brilliant. I love that. But, I mean, the, I think, like, in terms of, like, his openness, like, the timeline, this would have been before he wrote his, you know, award-winning book, like, right. Where of the Dog, where suddenly yeah. he saw everything laid out yeah. uh, for, us, for us all to see, mm. you know, the, the troubled childhood and all that. I mean, people knew bits and pieces, yeah. but, you know, but this stuff was, like, really revelatory as well. Yeah. I mean, he was ready to put himself out there. Yeah, well, I spoke to him, I suppose, around... The first conversation I had with him was about 2008, maybe. Maybe a couple in 2008 and and maybe another one or two in 2009, and the book came out in 2010. And looking back... And then for the new edition, I went back down to London and I saw him again. And he still smiles with difficulty. And he's still got (laughs) clenched hair. Uh, He hasn't changed one bit. I was going back... Before I went back down to see him last year, 
I went through my notes of our original conversations, you know, and he was talking about Will Carling and his difficulties, the relationship he had, on-pitch difficulty, and Brian always thought that he should be England captain, and then Will Carling got at this whippersnapper and he resented him for it. So we went through all of that, and I said, you know, Brian, you know, I've spoken to Will and he told you, told him what I just told you about boarding school at seven, vulnerability, insecurity, and he said, I was just looking, reading the notes again, he said, yeah, he said, God, I can... I can see that. Boarding school at seven. I mean, it must change your personality. It must damage you. And then he said, but we're all kind of damaged in a way. Mm-hmm. Now, stupidly, I never picked up on that at the time, as he said it to me. But I said it, but when I went back to see him, yeah. I said, look, here's the notes of what we did 10 years ago. He says, when you said that line, do you think you were talking about when you were abused as a child? And he said, probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. He says, but were you ready to speak about it then? Because his book came out... Mm-hmm. A year later, he says, I wasn't ready to speak about it then. Mm-hmm. He says, but that's probably where that was coming from. Yeah. He says, I was thinking about it. Yeah. Carling was damaged in a different way, but Brian Moore also put up the mask for most, for, you know, for the most yeah. of his life until he, until he spoke about it in, in public. And, and all of a sudden, things started to slot into place. Why, why is he the way he is? Why is he this driven, kind of obsessive individual why does he lose his temper so often it's because of what happened to him when he was a kid you know mm-hmm. so and you know i mean it's he was he became emotional the last time i spoke to him talking mm-hmm. about it and his brother had also been abused by the same guy Ugh, yeah the honesty of it amazing uh, i mean on the scottish side there's some fascinating characters you know the mm-hmm. tailform and Geekin, who are great counterpoints to each other but I, one of the things that, that uh, i loved as well was because it was before the dawn of professionalism mm-hmm. so you had, you had the absurd situations where, like, Ian McGeechan is basically on the breadline because yeah, you know, yeah. he's, he's working, yeah. uh, he's got this job as a teacher in a school, but he's trying to fulfil these commitments of, you know, coaching Scotland. He's, he's, you know, back and forth across the border and, you know, he's neglecting his family. Yep. And, and it, I mean, it does actually seem in the book that he was on the breadline. Yeah, yeah, no, he was. I mean, that's... that's no, he ab- absolutely he was. He was driving around in, in 1990, he was dry, driving around in a Ford Capri, which had about mm. 120 or 130,000 mm. miles on it. Um, his wife was working two jobs, he was getting nothing from the SRU, obviously, because it's amateur. Even the thought that they might cover his petrol was <laughs> laughable. But what was driving him was obviously a love of rugby, but also his father. And, th- and I think when you... When you yeah. I've, known, I've noticed this throughout my journalism career. When you talk to sports people, particularly male sports people, if you ask them about their father, doors open. And it was that way with Ian McGeekin. The first time I interviewed him, he was working with wasps at the time and I started to talk he started talking about his father started to cry because his father died I think I think his father was 48 or 49 when he mm-hmm. died but he was a hero an absolute hero to to Geech so he was I think he wanted to be a rugby coach because he loved rugby but he also wanted to be a rugby coach because his father was very much Glasgow mm-hmm. he was um, a former Rangers youth player soccer he was a soccer guy his dad and he, Ian was brought up in Leeds and he was constantly referred to as the Englishman by some of the journalists around at the time and the SRU. He spoke with a Yorkshire accent. If you talked to him, you wouldn't think that he's Scottish at all. And that used to grate on him big mm-hmm. time right. because his father was the most Scottish man ever. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to make his father proud. And he said actually to me in the, in the, for the new edition of the book, that on the pitch on, 19, on the day of 1990, 
the band, the pipe band that were playing were from uh, from a school in Dunblane, uh, a kind of mm-hmm. school where former families of military used to go mm-hmm. to. Um, and the, the leader of the pipe band came over to Geech. This is like half an hour before kickoff or whatever, you know. Um, and he said, uh, hi, Ian, and my name is whatever. Um, I went to school with your father. And Geech says, what? Because he said he'd been walking around the pitch thinking about his father, kind of thinking, yeah. I wish he was here to see this. Because he'd never even seen Geech play, play rugby for Scotland because he died before that. So he was thinking about his father, God, wouldn't dad love to be here to watch this? And this guy just appeared in front of his eyes. So I went to school with your father and he would have been very proud of you today. Wow. And Geech, as he was telling the story, he started to cry. And he said, look, I don't believe in karma or fate or anything like that. But he said, in this instance, I would just like to believe that something else was going on there. That maybe he was yeah, looking absolutely. down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's... One of the things I love about great books is like moments stick with you, like mm. tiny moments. Mm. Um, I remember speaking to to Michael Calvin last year, and he mm. was he was talking about it, this chapter he'd written on, on Jeff Astle and Jeff Astle's funeral, uh, and as the cortege was moving through, maybe maybe moving out of the graveyard, there was there was all these fans like reaching over and trying to touch touch his coffin, you know, just to mm. just to trying to be near to. And uh, that image always stuck with me, but yeah. the, the image that sticks with, with me about um, Geekin is like his dad, his dad picking the, the iron fight. Yeah, that, that's so he used to we used to work with steel. His dad and he would come home and Geech would have been I don't know four, five, six years of age or whatever at the time, and he would he would lift Geech up on his knee, and he would give him tweezers, and Geech would put the tweezers into his father's eye and pick out the little bits of steel in his eye. And he said, and I said, and you can remember that? He says, oh, he said, like it was yesterday. He says, I can still remember the sound. He said, a little bowl. He says, I can remember the, the sound of the little bits of, of steel landing in the bowl. You know, an incredibly tender moment, isn't it? It is like intimacy, but brutality as well, because yeah, of yeah. the harshness of that life of having to go to work and having, having to do this every time you finish. Yeah, and like, no, as you were saying, no goggles. No, no, goggles. no I mean, just health and safety. <laughs> like, are you, having a jo- are you having a laugh here, you know? Yeah. So that was such a, a, a lovely, lovely moment. I yeah. mean, you know. I want to talk a bit about the kind of social and political backdrop mm. to the book. Um, Neil did an interview with the producers of the I Am Duran, Roberto oh, Duran yeah, documentary, God, which yeah. is just amazing. amazing. One of the best documentaries I've, yeah. I've ever seen. But the, obviously his story is intertwined with the political situation in, mm-hmm. um, in his country. And it just it, it gives it such um, great depth, I mm-hmm. think, because of that. And... I think this elevates your book as well because you have all this stuff about Scotland is an angry country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really mm-hmm. angry. 15% unemployment, yep. poll tax, anti-Thatcher. It's sweeping the nation. You yep. know, None of that stuff was forced. That was all, yeah, that was yep. all there That's for right. you. And that yep. must have been really exciting as a writer to have this kind of broader canvas that this isn't just a sports story. You can break out and you can tell the story of, of British society, actually. Yeah, I think it helps that maybe I was Irish. Mm-hmm. I'm Irish. I haven't changed my nationality just yet. Because I was coming into this, I wouldn't say cold, because my wife's family would be very much not on Thatcher's side, put it that way. So I was hearing all of that, oh, Thatcher's the devil and all the rest of it. But I went into it kind of with an open mind. And what I find absolutely fascinating, so in, in the year before the annual football match, 
was abandoned because of riots. Home International, Scotland England game was abandoned because of riots and all the rest of it. So now there was one kind of sporting fix, England v Scotland, and that was the rugby game. And what happened was really weird. This, this incredibly conservative body, the SRU, I mean, so conservative, they decided to change the national anthem in 1990 because God Save the Queen, which was the Scottish national anthem before Six Nations matches or Five Nations matches, was getting booed at Murrayfield. So you could hear the, the, the tension. And they said, this is embarrassing because Princess Anne is sitting in the stand. They're all booing her mother. This isn't a great look. We need to do something about this. And it had loads of options, safe options. You know, Scots Wehe, Scotland the Brave, mm. Caledonia, tons. But they went for the most divisive one of all, Flower of Scotland. So you have all these suits sitting in the boardroom in Murrayfield deciding, well, let's go for this, you know, up and at him, get it up you England, you know. And I think that that was a tale of the time as well, because Thatcher didn't, you think of rugby fans are middle class and you think, well, you know, what would Thatcher, middle class, they're protected from the worst excesses of Thatcherism in this country, um, the way she attacks society and all the rest of it. But she also attacked the arts. She also attacked education. She attacked all different... She had the legal profession. She was an enemy of the legal profession. She had all these different middle-class strands of society in Scotland. Not just working class, but middle class now. Who really did disliked her? And a lot of those people went to Murrayfield. <laughs> so you had this meeting of two sets of communities here at Murrayfield. All of them really, really having a pr- big problem with Thatcher. And you also had the media... And I went into the Mitchell Library, God bless it. <laughs> and I spent like, I don't know, like weeks in there going through every single newspaper I could find, Scottish newspaper, and the coverage was like full-on attack, full-on attack. Bear in mind the Daily Record, when Margaret Thatcher became the leader of the Conservative Party in 1975, she came, her first visit was to Scotland, and the Daily Record's headline was Mrs. Supercool. When not long after that, she was the devil incarnate mm. on the front page of the Daily Record, you know. So, so all of that stuff was happening in, in Scotland. And a, so a lot of the Scottish players in 1990, they kind of, it went over their heads. But the English players felt it. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but Dave, um, Brian Moore, Will Carling, Mick Skinner, you know, enough felt it that they felt this mass, the guys who'd been here in 1988 and everything was sweetness and light, they said, hang on a second, this place is, this place is completely different now. Yeah, I mean, I actually watched some footage of it last night and it looks like a football crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just the, the way people are kind of swaying and moving about and it's got a windy day and it's an incredible atmosphere. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Class is a huge theme in the book, actually. Yeah. It's a theme between Moore and Carling. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of... It's the central pillar of the Telfer chapter as well, because I think yeah. you start by talking about privilege. That's yeah. his thing, isn't it? Privi- he, he, privilege, I've hated it since I was a lad. Because yeah. Telfer is the son of a shepherd. He's, his mother worked in what he called the big house. I mean, the kind of landed gentry, the duke of whoever it might have been at the time. So she was a, more or less a servant in the house. And he could see, as a young man, he could see the way his mother and father were expected to kowtow to their superiors in mm-hmm. inverted commas and he hated it he hated why why have they got so much and we've got so little i went to see him last year for the new edition and i said do you, do you still feel that way he said oh i am worse now i'm even worse <laughs> you know? uh, and he, got, he started going on about you know because he's big into his flowers you know uh, yeah, rather strange like he's a massive into his flowers and he, he went into this massive riff about the chelsea flower show and Kate Middleton, and she won an award at the Chelsea Flower Show the previous year or something right. for the garden. I said, do you think that she created that garden? Somebody created that garden for her, but she gets the award. And that poor guy down the road who's put his heart and soul, blood, sweat and tears, creating his own garden, gets ignored. I said, okay, Jim. <laughs> if, we're, if you're getting this passionate about gardens, we have to talk about rugby now shortly. So just, just cool your jets a little yeah, bit. Yeah. He... he Privilege, I mean, he used to, I love this story, and I remember him telling it to me when he was, when he was living in Edinburgh, and he was about 20, 19, 20 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, going to his work, he used to take the long route from where he was staying, the digs where he was staying. He used to go past George Harriet's school, deliberately timed for the George Harriet's kids arriving into the school. So he used to walk down the footpath and I said, I walk straight. He says, I wasn't getting out of their way. And I said, what was the point of that? He says, just, just to show them. I says, you did that? He says, yeah. I did that every day. Yeah. He says, I used to do it deliberately. I wasn't getting out of their way. He says, you said, it took me about, you know, maybe a third of a mile out of my way. I didn't have to go that way, but I did it anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it's deep, it's yeah. deep with Telfer. Exactly. And still exactly. is. I want to talk a bit about style, and you do some really interesting things in this book, and I'd like you to kind of break them down a little bit. What, what, I think what you do expertly as a sports writer, and we should say, you know, in Scotland you've won multiple um, Sports Writer of the Year mm-hmm. awards, and, and it's really interesting that um, you, and, and this book itself won the British Sports Book Award. Uh, yeah, the Rugby Book. To give you an example, there's a scene in the book where Carling is elected captain mm. uh, and there's really some really interesting pieces of dialogue and you take us, you take us into that room, mm. you know, the looks in the faces, what, who, who's saying what and it struck me at that point that what you do really well is that you bring conversations to life, you bring scenes to life, you set mm. these scenes really well to give you another example, I'm going to, I'm going to read you out some, mm. some dialogue from another scene, so it starts off and it says England hadn't won at the Parc de France in 8 years Peter Winterbottom was the last man standing from that team, so how was it done Winters? asked Moore to be honest fellas, it's a joke I'm worried about said Winters, they've got something 
Reasonable front five, bloody good back row, confident young full-backs, good defence. Gavin Hastings at full-back, home advantage as well. Geek will have them well organised, said Guskett. Telfer will have them fired up, said Dooley. Fair enough, said the judge. But if we do our bit, then no fucker should beat us, right? So that, that's, mm. that's brilliant because mm. you, can, you can see that table, you can see that room, they're all banding off each other. How do you get to that point where you can write that scene with such authority? Do you try and build up that scene by in the interviews with these guys say, yeah. what, who, who said what then? What, you know, how do you piece it together? Well, at first, someone, I can't even remember who it was, but somebody would have told me about a meeting. Yeah. And somebody would have said, Winterbottom says, it's the jocks we need to worry about. So I got as much information, but whoever was telling me that story, it, it, it might have been, been Brian Moore, it might have been somebody else. So they give me that. And then every interview I did subsequently, I said, do you remember this meeting? Because this meeting was in Spain, I think. It was in um, pre-camp before the start of the Six Nations. So you, oh, yeah, I remember it. This became a kind of a famous meeting. Mm-hmm, right. And they all remembered it. Yeah. I said, well, what did you say? Well, I don't know, I think I probably said this. And so you piece it together yes. by just by constantly drilling down into, mm. into who said what, what were you thinking, uh, where were you sitting, who were you sitting next to, um, all of that yes. stuff. I mean, I mean, you become obsessive about this stuff. I remember England stayed in the, the, on the Thursday of that week, England stayed in the People's Hydro Hotel, and then they moved to Edinburgh on the Friday. And there's a Bannockburn room in the, in the People's Hydro Hotel, right? And that was going to be... So the manager of the hotel showed Will Carling and Roger Rockley and Jeff Cook, the management of the England side, to the gentlemen, this will be your, your team meeting room. And they went in, and it was just basically Bannockburn, murals everywhere. I mean, you know, Robert the Bruce holding up severed heads in both hands, you know. I mean, the whole shebang, right? And Carling says, no, and walked out. And it was Carling who was telling me this story. Mm. So... I drove to Peebles, which is a long way away, to get a look at this room, oh right? Oh, my God, Tom. Um, and, of course, I got there, and it's still the Bannockburn room, but it's completely different. Yeah. <laughs> All the murals are gone. So I went to the manager and said, were you here in 1990? No. Is there any staff who were here in 1990? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll ask around. I'll... So about a week later, anyway, I got a phone call. I said, yeah, actually, we've got somebody who was here. He was whatever night manager or something, he was, he was here, here's his number. So I rang your man, he must have thought I was an absolute fruitcake, you know. He says, Can you, do you remember the Bannockburn room? And I said, oh yeah, 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 I remember England being there, yeah, I remember all that. Said, Can you describe it to me? Uh, so he described the Bannockburn room to me, brilliant. Oh, and then we had this piece of art from some famous artist that I'd never heard of. And then over in that wall then we had this and that, you know. So it's, it's the, it, you, be, you do become pretty anal about detail like that. Um, but that's important. I mean, that's, it is, and it, what it does is it gives you a confidence of a writer in writing yes. a scene. You know, it says, okay, the room, I've never, wasn't in the room, I'll never be in the room, but I know somebody who was in the room, mm-hmm. and he's described it to me almost, almost in a way that I could actually visualise what it, liked, what it was yeah. like, yeah. you know. 
It's interesting you're talking about you know the Brian Moore stuff, and he he let this little comment go, and mm. you, you thought well, maybe that was a reference to that. But it strikes me that when you're going into interviews, your your radar is quite high, highly attuned for certain certain things that you think right. I I, I want to shine a light in this, mm. you know. So for example, the Carling thing, you know, where he's elected captain, massive moment. You must have been you must have been saying right. Let's hit the pause button here. Yeah. Well, you know we're not going to skip past this. Tell me about this. Yeah, yeah. Walk yeah. me through this. Yeah, how um, it happened. Uh, uh, absolutely. I think around that when he was talking about that, he said, "Look, you know, he he knew it was happening. He knew obviously because Jeff Cook had given him the job. Nobody else knew. Everyone thought it was going to be Brian Moore, but he was sitting in the room quietly. He's twenty two. Yeah. He's a kid, like, and everyone's speculating." So, I mean, he described it brilliantly. I mean, you're, you're lucky because you, he, yeah. he gives you the colour that you need. And he said, I could hear Mick Skinner was over there and they were mm-hmm. speculating that it could, be, it could be Dean Richards. And then he said, no, Dean Dino is, is carrying an injury and he mightn't play in the, six na- in the Five Nations, which he didn't. So he probably won't give it to him. And Muro was over there saying, oh, you know, I haven't heard anything, but you know, I'm not confident, but I mean, who else could it be? Mm-hmm. So he was relaying all these, and he was sitting there on his own, just soaking up all these conversations going it's me nobody knows it's me but it's me and these guys are going to get a major fright so and then but because it was such a it was such a huge moment that they all remember it with absolute clarity when the name and your ex-captain is Will Carling Mm -hmm. it was like what Mm -hmm. you know so it was a huge Paul Ackford uh, Skinner all of them remember that as a huge, huge moment. So to really recreate that was easy enough because they had all very, very clear memory. I want to talk a little bit about the match and how you handle the match itself. Mm. And it was really interesting because you, you basically do these kind of first-hand accounts. So you jump between all these different yeah. voices as, and, it, and that drives you through the game, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought, I thought was a brilliant way to, to deal with it because you get the sense of, of, of it building and the key yeah. protagonists where, you know, where they're making interventions in the game. You know, you're quoting them and saying this is... So it's, it's really brilliantly done and brilliantly executed but did you think long and hard about how you would handle that or did you know that that was that was no I didn't I mean I I I would have I would have spent more time agonizing about structure than I did in actually writing the book itself I would have spent more time working out how I was going to do this than actually doing it itself um I went through I don't know how many structures I, I couldn't tell you how many and I used to torment myself with it. Mm. That was the, absolutely the hardest part. The writing of it, it wasn't easy, but it was easy compared to trying to get a... Because, I mean, originally I was going to carry on after 1990 and show how Scottish rugby demised, the demise of Scottish rugby after that. So I was gonna, it was going to be a much longer book. And then I thought, hang on a second, no. Because then it ends on a real low... Uh, Scottish rugby is in the dog days of Scottish rugby. Let's end it literally on the day of 1990. Mm -hmm. But it took me ages to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And I had done mountains of research about, okay, how am I going to move from March 17, 1990 into the next phase, when it all went wrong for Scotland and when it all went right for England. And then I thought, hang on, just stop. Yeah. Just, just, but it, it's, it seems easy now, and it seems stupid that I would have thought that. No, no. But I felt that I, I felt that I needed to, just needed to, to finish it all off by by doing this massive section at the end of uh, where are they now? Um, but not the, the structure of it, and that the kind of 
that first person, that kind of oral history style for the match itself. I probably had that in my head because I'm a big fan of oral histories, yeah. Studs Turkle, mm. uh, all of that stuff. The American sports writers. There was there was a there was some brilliant oral histories around at that time on movies. I think there was one on Rocky. There was one on. On Goodfellas, I think, the making of Goodfellas, which was, spoke to everybody, De Niro, mm. the whole lot of them. And I thought, God, that's actually the way. Because mm. these things could have been 15,000 words long, and yet you were through them, like, yeah, in true. no time. So yeah. that's the, and the pace of it was brilliant. So I, I kind of knew that for the match, once we got to the match, that's the way I wanted to do it. There's a kind of breathless nature of that chapter where you're, you know, you're rattling through it and all these people are chipping in and... So when you were interviewing them about that, did you did you interview any of them, any of them together, or did you show any of them the game? Like, yeah. How did you get them back into that moment? Yeah, I showed I showed a number of them the game. Uh, I didn't interview I didn't interview any of them together because I don't like interviewing two people at the same time because mm-hmm. I think it, it gets a bit messy. But I did. I remember uh, Telfer. I showed a bit of it to McGeekin. I showed a bit of it to Jeff Proben. Went down to because there's a, there's a there's a kind of a big moment at the end of the first half. There was a lot of scrums. Scotland were under massive pressure, and it was Jeff Proben versus David Soul in the front row of the scrum. So I showed Proben and I showed David Soul. I said, "Tell me what's going on here," you know. So so I got their perspectives as they were watching the scrums taking place. Mm-hmm. So I did a bit of that, yeah, yeah, and and for um, for the winning try for Tony Stanger, I think I showed Tony the try. You, sh- you can't show them the whole match. You just, you just show them little bits that might be relevant to them. Like, yeah. What are you thinking here? What's going on? Yeah. It's not what have you done. It's what are you thinking? That's interesting. I just want to finish up by asking about, about the reaction to the book. You mentioned before it won the uh, British Sports Book Award. I think we might have been on the same table that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think we were, yeah. The, the Barca book, I think. That's right. Think you were, yeah, yeah. We won it the same good year. night, yeah. Yeah, good night, <laughs> uh, from what I can remember. Um, <laughs> But what, what, what happened after the book came out? Obviously, the award, critical yeah. appraisal, reaction, you know, tell us yeah, about Yeah, I mean, it was, it's been amazing. Like, the award was great. The, the book was really well received. Delighted about that. And it made, it, made all, the, all the hours. Mm. I think I went, for the end of the book, I think I went 17 straight days, 3 a.m. finishes. In, in my shed at the end of the garden. Um, now, that was brutal. I wouldn't, I mean, but I was 10 years younger then. I probably wouldn't be able to do that now. You know, I wouldn't have the energy. I'd be falling asleep. Mm. But so when I, when I finished it, I knew that I could, whether people liked it or didn't like it, I knew that I absolutely emptied myself in the process of doing it, that I literally couldn't have done any more to make it better. That I'd just done my best. And there's a lot of, there's peace of mind that comes with that, you know, whether it sells or whether it doesn't. I knew, listen, I didn't cut any corners because um, I thought at that stage I was never going to write another book. This might be the only book I ever write. So I was happy with that. The Scotsman serialized it and David Soul didn't took against it, which was sad, actually. He wrote, they serialized it and he wrote a letter to the Scotsman on the back of the serialization. The book hadn't come out yet. And he said, oh, I don't like the name of, the, I don't like the name grudge. Uh, there was no grudge between Scotland and England players. He kind of misconstrued the name, the, the meaning of the title. And then he said, oh, this was not, a, this was not, 
This is not a game of where Scottish players were kind of galvanised by anti-Thatcherism or anti-Englishness. And again, I wish before he'd written that letter that he'd, that he'd read the book because I had sent it yeah. to him at, at that time. Because it's not that at all. It's not the point. Yeah. It's not that at all, you know. But I think David, you know, great player that he was, he became a great player because he was very single-minded. And I think, I mean, I, when he wrote the letter, I, I rang him left a message and I texted him and left a message and say, look, David, I'm really disappointed. Did you think the book is like this? Because it isn't. Mm -hmm. And I'd be really delighted if you were to read it and we could maybe meet up for a coffee and we could discuss it. And if you're still happy, unhappy with the book, then I will say, mm -hmm. gosh, fair enough. I apologize for, for, for that. But I said, I'd be surprised if you were unhappy with it, but he never got back to me. So, so that's, look, I mean, that all the rest of the players, they've been fantastic, you know. I mean, they've all been, the reaction to that has been, has been really good. I think they like, I mean, even the English players have been, I mean, I spoke to a number of them for the new edition yeah. just to find out what they're doing now, you know. Just, just, just really brilliant, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud of it. But the, the, the writing of it, the whole process was, uh, was, <laughs> it was painful. I, I mistakenly once said, you know, to my wife, uh, says, you know what, this is the male equivalent of, of childbirth. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. Never going to make that mistake again. <laughs> Thanks to Tom for his time. Check Tom out on Twitter at TEnglishSport. And look out for the new hardback edition of The Grudge with 10,000 words of new material to mark the 30th anniversary of the match. Thank you for listening. Please check out our growing archive and please leave a review.